Why Christmas? Why not, right? Why Christmas? Um, I did a search over the past month, uh, looking all over the place, especially in the gospel according to Google, and they have all kinds of viewpoints on why we celebrate Jesus' birth in December. And I don't have time to unpack all that, but it's kind of neat, and if you're really a history nerd, you'd love it, so nerd out if you want. But listen, I want to tell you something. This, this series over the next three weeks is not about explaining why Jesus was born. As great as that is, we can do that all year long, and we should. This series is about why we celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th. Now, when I say that, I want you to know right off the bat, I am pro-December 25th. I am pro-Christmas Eve, pro-Christmas. I'm pro-ho-ho-ho, Santa Claus. I don't grinch out on anybody. I don't. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Like I said, it was during this time in my life as a kid when Jesus really started working something special in me. Um, but this message is about uh, going back to see uh, how Christmas came to be. Like in, in, this, in this next slide you're going to see, I say this, Jesus wasn't born at what we call Christmas. Nobody celebrated Jesus' birth in December until, ready, the mid-4th century. Isn't that something? For hundreds of years, they didn't celebrate Jesus' birth in, in the, in the wintertime or in December. So, I want to talk to you about what happened. What happened in the world that, that took a, an empire, the greatest empire up until that point in all of history, the Roman Empire, who started out actually crucifying the one that was born that we celebrate now, and persecuted his followers for close to 300 and some years. What took place? What happened? that changed an empire that generally during December uh, had festivals, pagan festivals, to celebrate uh, the winter and, uh, and I don't want to say worship the S-U-N, but uh, focused on the sun, the sun our, our sun in the solar system. What took place? What happened that changed that? Um, I'm sure there are people who are worshiping the S-U-N somewhere and, uh, you know, celebrating the winter solstice. I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking any of that. But if you would really look across the northern hemisphere, the majority of the people today on December 25th aren't worshiping the S-U-N. But even those who don't worship the S-O-N all year in some form are worshiping the S-O-N during this time of year. Wouldn't you agree? Right? I, I think that's a great thing. I want to talk about why that is. And the simple answer to why that is, is this. Christians happened. Christians happened. And over the next three Sundays, these Christmas Sundays, I want to unpack these two words, why Christmas, with these answers what I mean by Christians happened. The reason why we celebrate Jesus' birth in the wintertime 
that there was a time when the Roman Empire declared and decided that Jesus Christ, whom was crucified by that empire centuries before, would now be celebrated on a day in December. And from that, and not just from that, but from that, today, or in this season, and on that day, Jesus is thought of. What happened? Christians happened. Why Christmas? It was because of three things, and we're going to cover one of those today. It was because of the way they worshipped, the way they witnessed, and it had to do with what they possessed, a type of wealth they possessed. Worship, witness, and wealth. Would you pray with me one more time? Jesus, we need you. Sometimes I only can get a little glimpse of how your heart beats for people. Your heart beats for people in this room today, people that are watching this and will watch this if we share this. Your heart has always been beating for people. I pray that the presence that changed the world from the minute you were born, through your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and for hundreds of years after, what those who believed in you possessed, that we would possess, that we would possess, and only you, only you, by your Spirit, can do that work today or any day. But I pray you would do that work today in me, through me, through us, to us. We ask it in your marvelous, awesome name, the name that's changed the world, Jesus. In your name, amen? Amen. Christmas became Christmas because of how the first Christians worshipped Jesus. Not that they worshipped him, but how they worshipped. We don't know much about their music styles. Although I found some stuff, some music styles from that time period, the first century, that I loved. I posted it, some of you might remember. Scholars think that perhaps, uh, you know in the New Testament, if you read like um, Colossians and Philippians, there will, there'll be the narrative, and then it'll look like it, it's like something set in a different case, like in a poetic form. There are a lot of scholars that believe that those passages in Colossians, Philippians, just for two, were, could possibly have been the first hymns that the Christians sang as far back as the first century. We don't know that for sure, but I, I, I tend to believe that's the case. Here's what we know about their worship. As they gathered or as they scattered, worship mattered. Worship mattered. Worship created Christmas. What was the worship like for the first three to four hundred years in the community of Christians all over the Roman Empire? Their worship was so powerful that it impacted a pagan empire to the point that the birth of Jesus was celebrated and the worship of the pagan sun gods dimmed in comparison. Why? Because their worship mattered. Their worship created Christmas. Why? Three reasons. 
Their worship, first of all, was scandalous. The worship of these people that talked about Jesus was scandalous to a Roman Greek mindset. Let me explain. Jesus of Nazareth was poor. Jesus of Nazareth was a peasant. He, was, he would have been looked like like the slaves were looked like in the Roman Empire. Two-thirds of the Roman Empire consisted of slaves. Two-thirds. Jesus would have been seen like them. He was scourged. He was shamed. He was even deserted by his followers at the beginning. He was betrayed. He was an outcast, and they worshipped him. A reputation to describe a Jesus of Nazareth to a Roman Greek mindset at that time would not have been something that would have caused people to be attracted necessarily to it. But these people worshiped this man who was described as I was describing him. They, listen, they worshiped him. That's scandalous. It was that they worshiped someone who had been poor, a peasant, who appeared to be humiliated and conquered, crucified by their empire. But something happened over those centuries that created in the minds and hearts of those pagans a great big why. Why do they worship Jesus? Worship like that was scandalous. That was upside down for them. Jesus wasn't a Caesar. He was a poor peasant. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a master. He was like a slave. Jesus was not a warrior. He was wounded. Jesus wasn't an elitist. He was an outcast. In today's world and in today's church, I say this all the time, we have more trouble seeing Jesus as a man than seeing him as God which makes me wonder if we really see him as God. The scandal was that the first century Christians in the second century and third century worshipped a man who was crucified that they claimed had become the one greater than the gods. Worship of Jesus was so different than the worship of the Romans who worshipped gods and ancestors and elements like the wind and the sun and the, not that the sun's an element, but the rain and the seasons. One of the great commentators of the past, Lenski, in his Greek commentary, contrasts the Roman and Greek mindsets of the time. Quote, the pagan and the secular idea of manhood is self-assertiveness, imposing one's will on others. When anyone stooped to others, he did so only when he was forced to do so. Hence, his actions would be seen as disgraceful. They worshipped somebody who did that. Scandalous. Historians, and if you're a history nerd here today, you'll recognize this Latin phrase about Caesar, victus, vinate, vidons, which means he came, he saw, he conquered. Talking about Julius Caesar, who began the idea that the most powerful might be a god, a son of the gods. And by the time Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus 
actually believed that, and on we go. In contrast, Jesus of Nazareth came and saw and surrendered everything and humbled himself and got down under the lowly to exalt them to a place in the heights of heaven with his Father. Worship was scandalous. This is what converted many Romans. This is what changed the empire. The scandalous worship. Christmas became celebrated in a few centuries by an empire that had crucified one that they now celebrated because of the way the Christians worshipped. It was a scandal. The word in the Greek for scandal means to set a trap. It means to bait somebody in. And this means that the way they worshipped and who they worshipped was so contrary to the empirical way, the Caesar model, that it became attractive. It caused people to stumble over it. It drew them in. Worship created Christmas because it was scandalous, but not just scandalous. Second of all, it was sacrificial. Worship for four centuries, four centuries, was sacrificial. Sacrifice was the context of what would have been their contemporary worship style. People ask me about our church from different times. Now, is your worship contemporary or traditional? The context of the book, how do you know what I'm talking about, the book? The context of the book, the Bible, the New Testament, defined the contemporary worship for centuries as sacrificial. Christians had nothing but trouble in their lives. Trouble had lasted so long that some were tempted to give up the faith. There is a passage written in the book of Hebrews that describes what it was like during their time to worship. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 35, the Hebrew writer describes this way of life for most Christians who lived scattered in the Roman Empire for centuries. Ready? Remember those earlier days after you had received the light? Listen. Here's what contemporary was like for them. When you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted what? the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. This is how they sold their message. The way they lived their life and worshipped this king in this contemporary setting that lasted centuries was this. But the trouble was intensified, and so verse 35, the Hebrew writer says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be rewarded richly. 
And then after that, we get to the 13th chapter, and the Hebrew writer sounds out a call to worship. Hebrews 13, 13 says, Let us then, or because of this, let us then... And he describes our call to worship. Their call to worship. Ready? Here's how. Go to him outside the camp, which is mean Jesus was kicked out of Jerusalem. You go to him, bearing the disgrace he bore. Through Jesus, therefore, let us... Have you heard this phrase before? I even heard this chorus before back in the day. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Did you ever sing that in church? Right? Yeah, me too. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And in our context, it can mean, I didn't stay home from church during hunting season. I'm sacrificing for Jesus. It's snowing out, but I still went to church because I'm sacrificing praise to the Lord. I'm going to actually even become radical. During the worship, I'm going to raise my hands, maybe clap, and I'm not ashamed. I don't care if they think I'm a radical. Their call to worship was... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. To openly profess his name then meant possibly confiscation of your property, prison, and worse. Why did the Roman Empire crucified this man, chased his followers all around the empire for three and a half, four centuries. Change course on the date where they worshiped the solar light to say by an emperor who converted to Christianity after his mother converted to Christianity, Constantine, that they would celebrate Jesus Christ's birth on December 25th, because of the worship of the Christians. If you go to a church that's more liturgical than ours, which is most, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. And, uh, and, and actually, we used to do this too. We used to have bulletins. And uh, you, you sit down and you look down, and in, in a liturgical church, it would tell you what's going to happen, and there would be, a, mostly it would be a thing that say, call to worship. And usually that would mean, hey, this is the time, whatever that means is, uh, there will be somebody that will come up on the platform and call the church to worship. Let's stand and sing number 462, or let's do the thing. I'm not knocking that. I'm just, our contemporary idea of call to worship uh, was that. Now, you say, what do you do at LOH? We don't pass out bulletins. We have coffee. That's our call to worship. No. Um, someone say, thank you, Jesus. We have called. <laughs> what we ever do without that? And then our band comes out, and it's kind of a call to worship. And some people are here before the band plays, and some are here while the band's playing, and some get here after the band's finished. But the call to worship for four centuries was a call to sacrifice your life with the fruit of your lips confessing who you loved, who you served, 
who you believed in, who you'd live for, who you'd die for, because that was a good possibility. They had no part in seeking to make themselves more acceptable to the empire. And the way they didn't compromise and the cost they paid to not was the, listen, the way they did not compromise and the cost they paid for not was the very thing that gripped the attention of the abusers and the persecutors. Let me say it again. The way they did not compromise and the way that they did not just lay down what they believed and the cost they paid for it was the very thing that gripped those who abused them and those who persecuted them. Because these people, like Jesus, sacrificed praise to God from the fruit of their lips when they know that what they confessed out of their mouth would cost them greatly. And the call to worship was, so go out to him and through Jesus. And this is why Romans declared Christmas as a celebration of the birth of Christ. Now, listen, we have to be patient because it might take 400 years not a Sunday service where, boom, magic happens and the whole world changes and we wait too long at that bus stop. There's a higher cost to pay for us, friend, a higher price to pay. It took decades and centuries of faithful honoring allegiance and devotion even when the heat was beyond bearable. And they offered praise from their lips to Jesus knowing what it would cost them to do so. And this is why we have Christmas. Their sacrificial worship created Christmas. There was a Roman governor of Bithynia by the name of Pliny. He and Tacitus and Suetonius are the three most noted, uh, 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 those who documented over the first couple centuries uh, what it, different times when Christians were persecuted. Uh, and if you look this up, there is this, this letter that Pliny wrote to Trajan, who was the Roman emperor um, in, in, the, in the early 100s. Pliny wrote this letter actually in 111 A.D. to Trajan the emperor because they had arrest, he had arrested Christians in Bithynia, but he didn't know what to do with them um, because they really hadn't done anything wrong other than they refused to worship the Roman Caesar as God. And so that gave an appearance that they were, they were revolting against the empire and Roman rule and law. And so Pliny writes to Trajan, and here's what, here, here's what he wrote, quote, I think I have it up here, yeah. They maintained, however, this, they, what did you do? And the Christians say, they maintained, however, that the amount of their fault or error had been this, <laughs> that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God, and that they bound themselves with an oath, not for any crime. Hey, let's make a promise to each other. We're not going to be crooks. <laughs> And we're not going to steal from people, we're not going to rob, and we're not going to commit adultery. And not to break their word. And not to deny the deposit when demanded. You think, well, what did they talk about all these theological? Let me tell you something. They didn't have Bibles. Most of the Roman people couldn't even read. 
They didn't have letters from the apostles circulating in every church like they what we do. Hey, let's let's pull out Philippians. There wasn't a Philippians everywhere. They didn't have internet. They didn't have text and Facebook and live. They didn't have they were they were blessed or lucky to even have a piece of a parchment of something that Paul might have said. And that, so but 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 there was something going on inside of them beyond the biblical thing that was real and it was the from the heart of the Bible, the author of the Bible, and they had this, and Pliny is trying to explain these people to the emperor. The way they worshipped Jesus in the midst of all that, scandalous and sacrificial, was two of the very three reasons why Christmas now is about Jesus in most of the world, at least for a little while, in some people's lives. How could they, how could they stand in the midst of such mockery and scandal, worshipping somebody that Rome would thought, we killed him. Nazareth? What is that? Who is that? He had 12 guys following him around? Do you know how many countries Caesar has conquered? What? Singing songs to him like he's a god? Above the gods? Even at the point of death or arrest or confiscation or ostracized? from society, and they keep on going? Here's the third reason why, and the reason that undergirded the other two. Their worship was supernatural. How do we know? How do we know there was something inherent in their worship that was beyond them? Because they were undaunted in the crucible of life. They didn't just worship because they were in the Christmas spirit. They were in the spirit. We have Christmas light imagery, which I love. Don't you love? I love. We have Christmas light imagery because his early followers worshiped the light of the world in the darkness that lasted many of their lives, their whole life. They never knew a day, many of them, where it wasn't dark. And that convinced people. And that convicted people. Because worship is a real expression of what one deeply values and honors inside. And they didn't always have a place. Listen, they didn't always have a place. It was never about the place, and it was never about the platform. They worshiped Jesus. It was never a show, but it was always on public display. They were known as people of the way, this way. What is this way? Undaunted in the crucible. When life got hard, they didn't waver, they worshiped. Second of all, it was Christ-centered in its expression. These people truly believed in the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They held to his word and followed him fervently regardless of what it would cost. Their worship was centered in Jesus, and it came from a supernatural origin. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm talking now to the 20-somethings who in 10 years from now, I'm not going to be 35 
10 years from now, uh, these guys that were up here, they might still, some of them might still think I'm, I fooled you so I can fool them, cool T. McGee. Um, but in 10 years, the ones that are younger than them, I don't know if they're going to see me that way anymore, no matter what I wear. If I wear cool looking, whatever, whatever the cool thing is, I'll just ask Tucker whatever the cool thing is and just go with what he says. But I don't know if that'll matter. But if I don't do anything else in my life as pastor of this church, I'm going to do this one thing. With God helping me and you helping me more, I'm going to pass the baton of what we are and what we've done and what we know to a new generation that in 20 years from now, by the grace of God, the LOH church will be stronger then than it is now. So everything about what we do has to be centered in Jesus. We must be very mindful and passionately jealous to make our modern worship, contemporary worship, to be filled with his name and focused on Jesus. In modern Christian music, there's too much I, me, my, and you. And it's too need-oriented. I was lonely, I was hurting, you helped me through my, 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 my. I don't mean to knock that, but that is true. There is some Christian music, even some worship music, that could be considered a secular love song if people didn't know any better. Because Jesus' name or God's name or the Holy Spirit's name isn't mentioned. It's you, you, you. Not everybody gets it. Let me tell you the name that will draw out of the dungeons of demons. Someone that can consider light. And it's the name Jesus. Let me tell you what name electrifies, electrifies the world and makes the Holy Spirit and angels of God want to go where? It's the name of Jesus. That's right. And that's what these people did. Whether it was, I can't even, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to say what they went through. I'm a joker compared to them. But in the, I can't even comprehend in the Colosseum when all they had to do all they had to do was say, okay, okay, hail Caesar, and walk home. And they said, Jesus is Lord. So when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, it's more than us at the end of a service saying Jesus is Lord. The context then was, when you say this, it'll prove you're saved because you're going to pay a price for saying Jesus is Lord. Are you with me? I heard an evangelist recently say, rather than being passionate about putting Christ back in Christmas, I'd love to see Christ back in Christians. Imagine that. 
Imagine preaching about the birth of Jesus more than at Christmas. And imagine preaching about the resurrection more than just at Easter. Imagine a church that did something like that. Because after Easter, we go back to seven steps to a happy marriage and four ways to financial breakthrough and nine ways to zip and zap and how to win your... That, listen, there's a place for everything, but I'll tell you who should be in the center of it, anything we preach. J-E-S-U-S. I think I got more claps over here. <laughs> Concreted in their everyday life, they backed up their singing with a willingness to die for the confession in their song. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to preach what I wrote. But this is what rocked people. This is what broke people. This is what astounded people. And this is what drew people. Their worship was supernatural. And because it was supernatural, they could worship one that people thought was a fool, who was God in the flesh. They could stand faithful in the midst of the greatest suffering we've ever never known. Why? Could they be scandalous in their worship? And why could they stay sacrificial? Not because they had to, because they had a power inside that made their want to even be willing to walk through fire and flame. I don't even know these people. I don't deserve to describe these people. But it's because of these people that we worship Jesus on East Christmas Eve and why we worship him on Christmas Day and why at this time of the year, even people that don't think of him all year even sing songs with his name in it and don't get offended. Isn't that crazy? I'll tell you what that is. That's because of these people. Supernatural. Let me explain what I mean by that. This same Jesus that came out of that tomb in Jerusalem, that filled the upper room with the presence of the Holy Spirit, was now living in people that had never been to Bethlehem, had never been to Jerusalem, had never even been in Israel, never left in the Bithynia, never left, left Thessalonica, never left Ephesus, but had the spirit that came out of that grave in somebody else that spoke about this name to them, and it changed them, and they didn't even have Bibles. They didn't know who Moses was. They were worshiping the wind and the rain and calling the emperor of Rome God. And they changed because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. They had the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives and in their gatherings. And listen, I want to I begin to land this plane. What does that mean? Not much. <laughs> they, listen, they aggressively sought the Emmanuel. It was not a passive approach to the presence of God. It was an aggressive one and an active one. And let me ask you, why do you think, why do you think that those Christians for four centuries went after the presence of the Holy Spirit aggressively? Why would you think? You know why they went after him aggressively? Because they needed him desperately. And the Roman soldiers, senators, slaves, even the emperor's mother saw this. A people hungry, 
searching for the presence of the only one who could strengthen them through the hell and the storms that had been created in some instances by an insane emperor over the empire. They found in the presence of Jesus by the Spirit what would truly quench thirst and fulfill hunger. They found one who could comfort them in real life through the heart-draining and gut-wrenching struggles. They had the presence of God with them, and that's what supernatural worship is. That's the kind of worship that we need to express, not for a couple hours, not for, but in our crucibles, in our everyday life, when the lights are off and the people are gone, and when people are leaving faster than they're coming. We should still say Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Come on. I was a youth pastor back in the uh, 80s and uh, late 80s. Had this precious family. Their last name was the Opals. And... uh, their son David was in my youth group. They had a 10-year-old named Candy. She had just, my, my Savannah had just been born. Old Devbo hadn't been born yet. And uh, they loved Savannah. And we'd get with them, and they'd just overbless us. And, and Candy was 10. She loved Savannah. She'd hold her all the time. David was one of my favorites in the youth group. Mother and father were sweet people. One Sunday night, and they were Sunday night going to church people. They were every church. They were there all, there were those. That, you know what? Before they knew Jesus, they didn't go to church. After they knew Jesus, you couldn't keep them out. In our church at that time, even though I led worship and tried my best, didn't have rocking awesome worship services like this. But Dottie and Dave and David, who was middle school at the time, were on fire for Jesus, and Candy was 10, and she was a sweetheart. One Sunday night, pulling out of their driveway on Old 40, right up there by the hen house, as they pulled out, some kid came up the road at 100 miles an hour and hit their car right in two and cut it in half and threw both their kids out of the back. I know this firsthand. They were my friends. They told me a story. Not a scratch on Dave and Dottie. They looked at each other in a second and said, what happened? And their daughter, Candy, was killed instantly, 10 years old. And David didn't, almost didn't make it. For a year, he was in deep, deep trouble. I watched. I did the funeral that day. That's why they pay you the big bucks when you're in the youth ministry. And watched them carry that mother, into the sanctuary because she couldn't hardly walk. And I watched her and her husband lift their hands and worship Jesus. I didn't feel like I was worthy even be in the room. You say, well, now they're emotional, they're going through a thing. They came to our church before we were in this building, over in the old building, 
and years had gone by. And you look out, ask my sister. We talked about this in home group the other night. She brought this up, reminded me of it. Years had gone by, and I watched both of them, and they never blinked. Their guts were, were wrenched. They went through hell. They wanted to lay down and die, quote, to me. They come in the presence of God. They lift their hands and worship to Jesus. You know the only way you can do that? And keep doing it for 10 years? The presence of someone inside of you that's beyond you. The blessed Holy Spirit. And you know what? That kind of living turns people's attention. That kind of living opens people's eyes. That kind of living is the only thing that can stand against the skeptic that says, if there is a God who loves us, then why? You look at somebody like that, and they don't have the answer to why. Listen, the faster we can get off the corner of why street, the better we'll be in our life. Get on what street? What would you have me do? My best buddy in ministry, my roomie from college, in the last hours of his first wife's life, dying of cancer in a hospital bed, spent the last minutes of her life with her hands reaching up, singing to Jesus. You know what that is? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone says to me, man, I remember when you were going through this, that, and the other, Pastor Tim, and you didn't skip a beat, and you didn't take any time off, and you kept rolling. You were really faithful. I want to change that and say, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Way back in the day when I would be crying my eyes out before walking out here, saying, God, I don't even have the strength to stand and preach. I don't even know what I'm thinking. And I'd preach messages, and people would get saved. Families would get blessed. Marriages would get healed. And people say, man, and they say, well, God's honoring your faithfulness. No, I want to say this. I'm honoring the faithfulness of God. I'm honoring the, the faithfulness of God because the own, listen, I don't care. I know whom I have believed in. I know of a God when you can't even move and you can't even think and you can't even pray and you have to preach. I know a God that can put inside of you something that in the hardest hell you're going through can make you feel in those moments when you, God wants you to use you for others that you could run through a troop, leap over a wall, and feel like you're on eagle's wings being lifted up. That's the God that can get you through anything, friend. Get you through anything. Get you through anything. Some of us have come out of stuff, and we got a little respite. But I got good news for you. We're going to go through another thing. Then we're going to go through another thing. And from here to there, we're just going to keep going through. But he's the God that gets you through. Ollie, he's the God that gets you through, brother. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with this. When I practiced this at home, I preached it in 27 minutes. I'm, I'm a good practicer. I'm going to close with this. The first Christians thought of worship as their service. 
the first Christians wouldn't have thought of a worship service. Christmas was more of a happening that started in Rome, not Israel. Isn't that interesting? Because the people who followed him worshipped him in a manner that was so scandalous, it was like a bait, it was a trap. It cost them everything, and they kept on saying Jesus is Lord. Because just as Jesus carried that cross, as Hebrews said, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself to God. So did these people. So did the pastors and the deacons. So did the leaders. So did the, the followers. Whether it was Thessalonica, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, the seventh circuit circle that John went and preached to Paul. The Spirit of God filled their lives. And because he filled their lives, Jesus was birthed in lives of people who had never heard of him or Abraham or Moses, Daniel. But someone came with something on fire in their life with a story about somebody who was raised up as a kid in Nazareth Parents so poor that when they offered the eighth-day dedication offering, it wasn't what the rich man offered. It was what the poor, the turtle dove and a young pigeon. That's what Joseph and Mary offered, telling you Jesus was a poor man. So was his parents. He went without so we could go with. And that's the message that will change the world. That's my message today. Would you stand, please? Listen. If you're watching this, wherever you are, and you're watching this, and I hope everybody in this church will share this through your Facebook, through your whatever you're ever. We'll have it on our YouTube. Share this, man. We don't do live stream so that when you're not here, you can watch it. We do live stream because we want people that are dead in sin to come alive in Christ. And if you throw this message up in the wind of the Internet, God might place it somewhere you never dreamt it could go. Not because I'm doing it but because I'm saying, God, use our church beyond the boundaries, geographical, mental maps we have, and send this message to my man Lyle, who's always watching from Canada. Hey, Lyle, what's up, brother? And people all around. Send it out. Send it out. If you're out there, you're in here, I describe to you who this Jesus is and why people have given up way more than we've ever known and kept on going with him, changed an empire, not by military conquest, not by political protest, not by posts and tweets, but by a life that had his life and it changed the world. We sing, oh, come let us adore him this time of year. Don't you love that? These little kids, man, singing songs about the King of kings and the Lord of lords because of these people that for centuries 
allowed the power of Jesus. When they got weak, he made them strong. When they were in need, he, he asked them to do something in their life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, man, I really want people to feel your presence. I really want this to be about you. You are the divine portrait. You're the true likeness of the invisible God. You are the firstborn heir of all creation. We believe that you're the son that created everything that is, things we can see, things we can't. You're over every power, all dominion, over every realm of government. You're over every authority. You created it all. It's by you, for you, and of you, and to you. We believe that you existed before anything existed. And anyone now in the world can find full completion in you and only in you. We believe you're the head of every church. You're the head of the body, this church. We give you rightful place. No man, no man can stand beside you in any form or fashion or level of authority. Only you. By your birth, you came to shed your blood on the cross to bring everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, back to yourself, back to your Father's original design, restored to complete innocence again. Please bring our church back to you. Please bring the lost back to you. Those watching to you. Those around us to you. Because we worship you in this way. Christmas is happening here. And we lift up a sacrifice of praise from our lips. Jesus is King. Now, as we stand today, and the band leads us in this song, I believe it's called Adore. I think that's what it's called. We ask the Holy Spirit to ignite that thing inside of us that we will worship Jesus in a manner that will shake heaven and hell this morning.